And before we jump in, while you're turning to Genesis 12, I feel it's very important to pray again. I got a lot of things to share with you today, and I'm very excited about it, uh, but I also have a time commitment. So let's take a moment, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we pray that you would illuminate the scripture for our understanding, that you would help us to grasp the importance of what it is to see how you have structured your word and how you have told us all about what history entails. Father, give us wisdom. May the Spirit be our teacher. Illuminate the text to our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are covering dispensations. Uh, It's interesting because sometimes when you talk about the idea of dispensations with some people, they frown upon it. They think it's a waste of time. They think that you've uh, made a mountain out of a molehill and and those types of things. You're being nitpicky about your theology or, oh, you're one of those Christians kind of thing, uh, out of the ordinary or or, um, not really concerned with the main thing. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that if we don't understand dispensations, we don't understand how to interpret God's word. And so you will find yourself getting into all heaps of a mess of trouble, pulling verses from the Old Testament that have no bearing today. Uh, Somehow somebody's found their pet peeve verses in Leviticus that they love to throw upon other people, not realizing that that's not for the church. And so in order to rightly divide God's word, in order to rightly understand God's word, we have to understand God's word, how God made it understandable. Would you agree? How many people like it when they misconstrue what you've said? No one likes that, do See, that hits home with us, okay? I promise you this, God's heart is the same in that type of situation. In fact, we could do this. I, I bet, you, you guys ever heard the telephone game? Yeah? Start something up here with Zach, and let's just pass it around, and when it gets over here to Jerry, we'll find out what I said. You think that's going to come out clear? Probably not. I'm going to say Jesus Christ is king and Jerry's going to come up with don't forget to get bread before you go home. (laughs) That's usually how those things end. Somehow they get garbled over time. God has revealed himself plainly and he wants us to know him. So let me refresh a little bit just in case we're not all up to speed or where we need to be. Number one, what is a dispensation? A dispensation is a stewardship of time. It is not necessarily a time period. People often want to say, well, it's from this time to this time, and that's the only time that it is, and we regulate it to time only. It's not. Time is just what helps us understand where the dispensation falls into place. But what a dispensation is, is it's actually a stewardship. It is a requirement that God is placing upon the human race, his creation, in response to his goodness. That's the whole idea. The universe is God's house. It's how he wants to set the rules. And because he is God, because he is the creator, we are the creatures, he is the only one that is entitled to make those rules. We have the responsibility to respond to those rules. Now, one thing that is common, I don't know, a mishap that I find when I talk with people about dispensations is we talk about, well, we we believe that commonly there's seven dispensations. Oh, so you believe that there's seven different ways to be saved. No, you're reading salvation into a stewardship of time. The stewardship of time has nothing to do with salvation. Do people get saved during those stewardships of time? Yes, they do. But they get saved the exact same way that anybody gets saved at any time in history. And that is by faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, period. That's it. Abraham believed God. 
And it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't sound like that there was a different way for him to be saved other than faith alone. So that never changes. The responsibility that God places upon man is to show us our neediness. Nobody likes that, do they? Did you ever come to church thinking that you would be called needy today? Does that sound like a fun thing? I'm not needy, I have everything. Usually that gets a man right in his ego, doesn't it? Sadly, sometimes for us men, our ego becomes our Christ. And it's not. It's not. So when we get to Genesis chapter 12, we're seeing a change in dispensation. Let's recap what we've seen so far. Number one, the dispensation of innocence. Don't eat of the tree. They eat of the tree. The judgment is that now work is going to be hard. Bearing children is going to be hard. They're cast out of the garden. But they're spared because something else died in order to cover their sin. That's grace. Then we dealt with the idea of innocence. And what is the dispensation of innocence? I'm sorry, conscience. The dispensation of conscience is, is now that they've eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, every single person is now born with an understanding of good and evil. And you can now make that choice. The problem is, is that when we as people vacate our rightful position as creations under God's headship as the creator, we begin to do what is right in our own eyes. And when we do what is right in our own eyes, we always choose evil continually. In fact, we're going to see an instance of this today in some of the scriptures we're going to look look at. And, but I think it's important for me to go ahead and prepare you and let you know, just as a general rule of thumb, and if you don't get anything else of, out of this, if you're looking for an application point, here it is. The decisions that are made in life that are based on convenience are always wrong ones. God's word is never set forward to where, well, how does this benefit you and how is this most convenient for you? I guarantee you that's always the wrong decision. God's way is rarely convenient, but it is always right. And it always develops the man or woman of God for maturity. He doesn't check with us to find out how we feel about it. Why? Because that's what's usually driving our train. That's not what obedience is founded on. It's founded upon fact. We'll see some of that today. What we find out is that conscience doesn't work to govern man as a stewardship. Why is that? Because the thoughts and the intents of the heart are only evil continually. And so God sends in a judgment, the flood. But in his grace, he saved eight people out on the other side of it. Then they established civil government. Life for a life. You are to multiply, spread out, fill the earth. What do we decide to do in exchange? We want to gather in one place and we want to build a tower and a name for ourselves. We want to be king. We want to be on top. And so what does God do? He judges By confusing the languages and spreading out the people. How does he spare them? Well, here's the interesting thing. Sin deserves what? Death. And the sheer fact that we have ancestors that guaranteed our existence here is an act of grace. Can't take life for granted, guys. It's an act of grace. So now God's going to do something different. We've read this before, but I want you to see the particulars of it. You may remember some of this from the foundational framework series. In chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 3 says here, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Now we didn't cover this too long ago. 
It was the idea of the Abrahamic covenant. And remember, what was promised to Abraham is unconditional in the form of land, seed or descendants, and worldwide blessing. Now let's watch this because verse 3 is the one we need to pay close attention to. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. In other words, you are to be a blessing to others. Now watch what it says here, verse 3. Pay close attention, guys. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. Now what's interesting is the word bless is the exact same word in both instances. But the word curse is not. So notice the promise that's made forward. This is the dispensation of promise. And I don't think the promise is so much the promise made to Abraham about Land, seed, and blessing. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's a contract that is established that is unconditional in nature. The promise is blessing and cursing. Let's look over it again. And I will bless those who bless you. This is a divine promise. And here's what this does. is This makes us think long and hard about how we treat the people of Israel and the anti-Semitism that goes on in the world. Because look at the next one. And the one who kalals you, I will aor. Now, Pastor Steve, correct my Hebrew tomorrow, because I'm not good at it. And there were no gutturals, so I didn't have to <laughs> any of that stuff in there. Anybody ever heard anybody speak Hebrew? I've got a CD of a guy singing it. It's amazingly atrocious in some ways, but it's beautiful. Because there's a lot of... <laughs> Sounds like somebody's got a cold. It's bad. But... Regardless, there are two different Hebrew words that are used here. The first one, kalal or kalel, is the idea of belittling someone. It's actually formed from the word that means to make small. It's actually the idea of talking down to someone, speaking crossways towards them, making them to be less than what they are, viewing them as something that is insignificant and pitily is the idea. But the second one is, and you, that that person who does that, I will curse. This idea is to ban or to place under a curse or to bind a curse to them. In other words, it is a lasting judgment that sticks. Now think about this. The first use of the word curse is attitude towards Israel. The second one is recompense. For that attitude. Does everybody see that? And that's in both situations. Whether you bless or whether you belittle, the recompense out of that is to be blessed for blessing or to be cursed for belittling them. Does everybody see that? Yes? Yes. Who's awake this morning? See, here's the beautiful thing about me having a pulpit in front of us. (laughs) When my points fall flat, that's what they teach you in preaching school. You beat on the pulpit to let them know that at least you meant it and they should have got it. So now you guys feel weird, weird. Did I miss something? Yes. There you go. Now here's what's interesting. If you have the ESV version, you will notice that that first instance of curse is actually translated dishonors. Another good version that has come out is called the Holman Christian Standard Version. It actually says, I will curse those who treat you with contempt. That's a really good rendering of what's going on here. In other words, anyone who belittles or treats with contempt the people of Israel, the descendants of Abram, 
will be cursed. This is the requirement of this dispensation. Now, if you've got your chart, you look at your chart and you write down on there that this dispensation is the dispensation of promise. When does it take place? Well, it starts in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. But in particular, the emphasis needs to be laid upon verse 3. Verse 3 is the crux issue. Now, up until this week, I have always taught this dispensation as God is pulling away from the world at large and he is placing the dispensation in the hands of a small little race of people that he's beginning from scratch and that starts with Abram. I was wrong. And so if that's what I taught in the foundational framework series, I am wrong because what I realize now is actually Israel is the requirement in this dispensation. The dispensation still holds true for the requirement of worldwide. How are we as individuals, as nations, as a whole, treating Israel? Now, you guys know my fondness for politics. But praise Jesus Christ for Harry Truman. Because when Israel came back together as a nation, and for some reason America's opinion always matters in situations, he upheld their right to be called a nation once again in 1948. Now this created immediate revolt from the Arabs. But praise God that our nation at that time stood in a declaration to where we were on the side of blessing rather than cursing. If you want to know how the United States of America gets in hot water, it's not because we haven't murdered enough children. We've already done that. It's not because we don't have enough fraud spreading around. And yeah, sin is that serious. We need to call it what it is. But our stance in relation to the nation of Israel matters so much in the eyes of God that he elicited a promise and a requirement for us to uphold. Because the American church has gotten away from dispensations, we have forgotten this responsibility. And so we have a privilege and a requirement and a responsibility to stand by the Jewish people. That's why organizations like Jews for Jesus are so vitally important today. And you would be amazed how many Christians disregard them and run them out. Why? Well, the reason is, is because the church has replaced Israel. And so God doesn't need you anymore. Now, let me be clear on this. That's the devil's theology. The idea that God is done with Israel is insanely unbiblical. And you have to twist scripture to come to that end. Now, if that doesn't mean a big deal to you today or right now, I hope that it will by the end of this sermon and you will see the significance of why this is important. Because here's the thing. If it's top priority on God's heart, it should be top priority on ours as well. I think that's important. So the question is blessing and cursing and how are we going to react in those situations? Now, I want to show you some interesting things about this. If you've got a pen, please document with me how this unfolds. If you've got your little booklet on the church, does anybody need a booklet to take notes on? You would like to have one? Zach, would you care? You're such a fast guy. I appreciate that. They're back there on the back next to where the handouts are. Just one. Who else needs one? I get this taken care of. While Zach's doing that gracious act of service of which he will be rewarded before the Bema seat, let's all go to Psalm 89. If you don't know what the Bema is, come to Sunday school at Pete's class. Psalm 89. Turn with me to Psalm 89. This entire psalm could stand to be meditated on, broken down throughout your week, maybe prayed through, just getting it saturating in our minds. But I want to draw your attention to just a few things that really stand out here. 
just up front with Barb right here, Zach. Thank you so much. Psalm 89. We're going to start in verse 28 and go to 37. If you want to write down where these are, you don't necessarily want to write it down on your chart, but I want to show you some things about this promise that has been made and some of the ramifications that come from it. So what is the requirement? The requirement is how we treat Israel and how Israel treats us. That's an important point. Don't think for a second that Israel is somehow off the hook. They were told to be a blessing as well. And here's the thing. Does that mean that when we support Israel, we're supposed to support their sin? No, God didn't support their sin. God chastised them for their sin. He rebuked them for their sin. He judged them for their sin. But as far as God's purposes for Israel, that is the test in front of us. Okay? So now, take a look at Psalm 89. We're going to start in verse 28. It says, My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. Now, if you say, who in the world are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Israel in particular. But if you go back to verse 20, you'll see I have found David my servant. Okay? So the idea of David as the promised king, we know from First Samuel, uh, or sorry, Second Samuel chapter 7, that we're dealing with the idea of the Davidic covenant would be there. But David is a representative of the Jewish people. Okay? So notice it says in verse 28, my loving kindness, my loyal love, I will keep for him how long? Pay attention to that language, guys. And my covenant, my contract, shall be confirmed to him. Verse 29, so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Now watch this, here's the sin part. If his sin, sorry, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Does it sound like that even though they're God's chosen people, he treats them lightly? No, in fact, it's because they are his chosen people that he disciplines them. In fact, the scripture tells us you don't discipline a son that you don't really love. You only care about them doing wrong when you absolutely love them because you want better for them. That's the reason why we should be disciplining our children. Because we desire for right and better ways than what they choose. It's no different with how God is a parent to the nation of Israel. Verse 33, But I will not break off my loyal love, my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate. Does everybody see that? I will not violate, and watch this, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Now, in an ever-changing world, here's what God's telling you. My promise I made to Israel, I will not change. This doesn't change. It can't be altered. It can't be misconstrued. We're not going to put an appendage at the end of it or anything like that. It stands just exactly as God has said it. Verse 35, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. It cannot be altered. His descendants shall endure how long? Forever. And his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. In other words, as long as the sun and moon continue, the descendants of David will continue. Now, here's the thing. Some of you remember this. I don't remember this. I'm way far removed from this. Say what you want about how horrible Hitler is, and it's true. I don't know if there's enough words in the English language to describe how terrible he is. If you've, if you've got Netflix, you can watch a, a documentary. It's called Night Will Fall. 
It's an amazing, humbling documentary that they actually hired film crews to come in to oversee and, and to document for the American people at the time the cleanup of the death camps. It's incredible. It's humbling. It's sobering. And for some reason, they shelved that footage and didn't even bring it out till a couple of years ago. They polished it up and finally released it. It's very well done, but uh, it, it's scary. Don't recommend you uh, watching it with your children at all. Watch it, screen it for yourselves. It's only an hour and 20 minutes long. It's worth your time. Night will fall. It's worth watching. It's humbling. Say what you want about Hitler, but he was persuasive. And here's one thing that we know. The Jews should have been extinct during that time. As vicious and as ravenous as he was about ethnic cleansing, about racism essentially is what it was, they should have died. The only thing that kept them from that was God's promise. And I think that's one thing we have to remember. If there is a testimony that there is a God, so many people wander around looking up in the sky. Is there a God? Is there a God? Has anybody seen these videos of these kids, these college kids all dressed up with their hair and ponytails pointing at broccoli in the middle of the street so nobody can get to work? What is wrong with our nation, man? Somebody give them a better education than that. Good grief. Pointing at broccoli. You're bad. Who knows? That's what drugs do to you guys. Stay away from them. Our nation has got some problems. And I think it's because we forgot the main thing. It's a main thing. There is a God who holds his promises steadfast and sure. And Israel testifies throughout history of the faithfulness of God. Sometimes we forget that. He tells us right here in his word. I won't alter that promise. I'm not changing anything. My word is steadfast. I'll tell you this. If you can't trust God's word, you have nothing. There is nothing sure or certain in this world. And if you can't trust God's word, and if for somehow it changes, you can't trust him either. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. What makes Israel so special in this calling out of Abraham and setting them aside? If they are the requirement, if we're supposed to care about them, encourage them, build them up, pray for them. You see those bumper stickers, right? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Every one of us should do that. Add that to your prayer list in the morning. Every one of us. Before you go to bed at night, throw it in there. I promise you God likes it. How about Deuteronomy chapter 7? Look at verse 6. Here's what Moses tells them. Very revealing. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your Elohim. And notice what it says. Yahweh your Elohim has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And if you're consistent with the use of the word possession throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you find out, for those of you in Deuteronomy class, don't make me look bad here, possession means what? Inheritance. Israel is God's inheritance. Or let's say it this way. In the end of time, that's what God gets. Now think about that for a second. God is so interested and loves people that people are what he gets as an inheritance when it's all said and done. That's a personal God. Look what it says after that, verse 7. Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were fewest of all peoples. It's not because you had great strength and he thought there's really something good there to work with so we can move forward with that. 
God's not concerned with quantity. He's concerned with quality. Look what he says in verse 8. But because the Lord, what? Loved you. Why are the Jews chosen people of God? Because God loves them. Period. That's all the reason he needs. That's all the incentive he needs to keep his promise. It's because God has a love that is everlasting, that never quits, never diminishes, and never stops. He is always loving. Look what it says. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. That's this covenant with Abraham that we saw in Genesis 12. He says here, Yahweh brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh, your Elohim, he is Elohim, the faithful Elohim, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now watch this. But repays those who hate him to their faces destroys them he will not delay with him who hates him he will repay him to his face therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which i'm commanding you today to do them does that sound like a blessing and blessing and cursing and cursing situation it very much does now here's the interesting thing when does this curse take place turn with me to exodus 1 and we're doing just dandy on time so don't anybody worry about it That means don't turn around and look at the clock. Within this dispensation, we see a very real situation take place. In fact, it's so real and it's so profound that whereas before God would identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, once this Exodus event takes place, he now refers to himself afterward as the God who delivered Israel from Egypt. That's what a massive undertaking this is. Now, if we think back historically, Egypt is the world's superpower. There's no one greater than them. There is no one mightier. No one has a bigger army. No one has a more educated society. No one has more conquered territory. The reign of Pharaoh is fierce. And for no other reason than all the people that were Egyptians esteemed him to be a god in the flesh. So now you've got this psychological demonic buy-in that is further manipulating people to uphold a man much greater than what he should ever be. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. So that the land was filled with them. Now if you remember this, Joseph was already in Egypt. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He later on has an interaction with his brothers. And eventually invites them and his father to come over. And they set up shop in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh cares for them, loves them. They're able to find work. They're able to prosper. But then Jacob passes away. Joseph passes away. Time takes place, and look what happens as they grow and they grow. Verse 8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that's interesting because it's not like the Egyptians didn't keep good records. In fact, they kept such great records that when the exodus happened, they made sure to expunge that event from most of their historical accounts, except for one. 
And I don't know if you've ever read about this, but it'll send goosebumps up your arms. You guys call them goosebumps here? Yeah. Okay, it's making sure. Sometimes we call them chili bumps. I don't know. But they goose flesh, whatever. Goose pimples. Anyway, they actually excavated about 20 years ago one of the tombs there in a pyramid. And they were looking through in civilization how certain people had died. And they actually found an inscription that said, This one child was the firstborn of Pharaoh, and he was taken by the God of the Hebrews. Yeah, that's cool. Can you imagine why the Egyptians didn't want you to know that? Because they didn't like to admit defeat. In their minds, they're always the superpower. In fact, here's what's interesting. After this Exodus event, you don't really hear of Egypt again in Scripture until 1 Kings 14. That's how long it took them to recover historically from the blow that God gave against them. Because why? They belittled Israel and they were judged. What's that? At least 700. I think it's 700. I want to say the time of the Exodus was around 1440 is what they have. You would have had the time of David's rule in 900. But I can't place 1 Kings 14 in my head for some reason because after Solomon, there's so many kings in both kingdoms. It's it's crazy. So uh, it's worth a Google. (laughs) Okay. It's good. So notice it says here, verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely. And a good translation of that is also shrewdly. Let's deal shrewdly. Let's make a decision out of convenience. Let's deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh's storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. In other words, it's a choice made to belittle the Jewish people for the sake of logic and convenience. Now, we know the judgment that pours out of this. If you're asking the question on your chart, well, where is it that this failure of mankind took place? It took place when the Egyptians decided that they would enslave the Jews. It's not the only time, but within the dispensation of promise, that's when this takes place. And this lasts until Exodus 20 with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which we'll see next week. So if you want to write down in your chart, when was man's failure? When Pharaoh enslaved the Jews. Now, it's time for judgment. We know what the judgment is from this, right? What is it? The plagues. There are ten plagues that are given, and we went through in detail And foundational framework about each one was an assault against a demonic idol that had been raised up in Egyptian culture in order for God to show himself supreme over that. Now, what's interesting is, is I want to see some other things to show that this dispensation, the dispensation ends and a new one begins, but the requirement laid upon people does not change. So now, let's all get real daring and let's turn to the book of Zephaniah. Wow, I haven't heard that kind of rumble turning to a passage in a while. That's a good one. We need to have Deb come up and sing the uh, Books of the Bible song. Some of you are humming it. It turned to Zephaniah. Grief. A lot of minor prophets, aren't there? 1440 in your Bible, Tom? Great, because everybody here has your Bible. 
He means well. Zephaniah chapter 2. In fact, a good study from Genesis chapter 12 moving forward is to document for yourselves, if you're doing a chronological reading through Scripture, what are the nations, what are the Gentile nations that came against Israel, and what did they suffer because they did that? It's a good study. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. And the Cherethites is another name for the Philistines. In fact, all four of those places that were mentioned in verse 4 are all cities that are under the control of the Philistines. Now, we know about the Philistines, don't we? Who was the great Philistine? Goliath. In fact, on an individual basis, here's what you find is the upholding of the dispensation of promise. Did Goliath come against Israel and belittle them? He did. What happened? He died. In fact, we often think it's funny. We kind of shake our heads and think, why in the world did the Holy Spirit put that in there? But when David comes out and he says, why are you guys scared of this uncircumcised Philistine? And we say, why in the world did he have to bring that up? (laughs) Seems strange, doesn't it? But what is David doing? This man has no promise from God. We have the promise. And what does it say? If they belittle us, they will be cursed by God. I don't need your sword. I just need a sling and some stones. Let's get to work. That's the type of thing that God's true word that is unchanging does in a person. All of a sudden ignites a faith that would otherwise not be there and causes them to walk forward on the promises of God. David had no problem, and on an individual scale, there's the outfolding of the dispensation of promise. Notice here, because of the way that they treated Israel, God is pronouncing against them. It says here, the word of Yahweh is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks, and the coast will be, now watch this, for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In fact... This area in verse 4 is what's known as the West Bank. Are you familiar with the conflicts that are going on there today? If you watch the news, you are. That's exactly what this is talking about. And notice what God's promise is. I'm going to make sure that my chosen people take your real estate. They're going to live in your land because it's theirs. I gave it to them. I promised it to them. Look how this moves forward. They will pasture in it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening. For Yahweh, their Elohim, will care for them and restore their fortune. In other words, they'll have no need to fear because they will wipe you off the face of the earth. They will be my tool of judgment against you because you bothered to belittle them. Verse 8, I've heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon. Now here's the problem. Moab and Ammon are cousins. Not cousins of just one another. We're not talking about that. They're actually brothers of one another, but they came from Lot. Everybody remember when Lot and Abram were together and they separated? Lot ends up in Sodom. So notice, they're cousins. Just because your family doesn't get you out of obedience. Look what it says here. I've heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon. 
with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles. What are nettles? You might know. Weeds. They're weeds. Anybody like weeds in your garden? No. Some of you do? That's weird. All right. Notice it says, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual, a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit, will possess them. Does everybody see how Israel comes out on top whenever a nation, Gentiles, want to come against them? Everybody see this? Okay. Just to give you another one, if you wanted to keep reading, uh, verse 10, real quick, we have to cover 10 and 11 because it's important. This they will have in return for their pride, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of Yahweh of hosts. Now watch this. Yahweh will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods. Everybody see that little g, but it's in plural. The gods of the earth. What is that? Anybody remember from Foundational Framework? Demons. What motivates anti-Semitism? Demons. That's what this passage is telling us. The Lord will be terrifying to them, for He will starve all the demons of the earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to Him, everyone from His own place. Why will they bow down to God? Because God will come in and swiftly remove the demonic influence. And once that demonic delusion is out of their path, they finally see the Almighty faith in doubting God for who He truly is. And when they see Him for who He truly is, they bow down and they worship Him. That's why the nations suffer a good dose of repentance. You get the demons out of the way, it's amazing how clearly they can see God for who He truly is. How about this? Let's turn to Joel. Turn over to Joel. We're hitting all those good books. Right before Amos. Does that help you? Yeah, I'm sure it does. Joel, chapter 3. Man, how time flies. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do if you wouldn't mind write it down. Joel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 in your own time. We're only going to look at seven verses because I want you to see this. Joel, chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Notice that God is giving a time that this is going to happen. The fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, so he's speaking of the southern kingdom in particular, is going to be restored. And watch what happens here. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations. All of the Gentiles will be gathered together in one place. Now think about this and what you know about prophecy in the end times. Okay? I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now here's what's interesting. There's been a lot of debate. What is the valley of Jehoshaphat? Oh, well, it's just used figuratively. No, it's not. It's actually a valley known as the Valley of Jezreel is what it is. And what's interesting is, is the southern half of the Valley of Jezreel is also known as the Valley of Megiddo. The word Megiddo is how we translate into English Armageddon. It's where the final battle happens, where the blood will up, be up to the horse's bridle and will be over four miles long. So your prophecy is fitting together just like somebody zipping up a zipper. Okay? Okay. So watch, we know when this happens. 
It says, then I will enter into judgment with them there. He's going to judge the nations. Why? On behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. Because every Gentile nation, and what is a Gentile? It's somebody who's not a Jew. So everybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. All the nations and how they treated Israel will give an account in the valley of slaughter, in the valley of Megiddo, before Lord God Almighty, and he will judge them and hold them accountable for how they treated his people. This promise has long, enduring consequences. We can either be a blessing or we can be a cursing. Notice what it says. Whom they have scattered among the nations, and they've divided up my land. Are any of us real estate agents? No. No. So when we start having foreign policy talking about how we're going to divide up the Middle East, you know we're headed for trouble. Because we're belittling God's land and we're asking, please curse us, please judge us. Write to your politicians, tell them no, no. Verse 3, And they have also cast lots for my people, and traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. In other words, they're putting Jews in slavery is the idea. Bad, bad choice. Verse 4, Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Man, the Philistines just cannot stay out of God's bad mood, can they? It says here, are you rendering me a recompense? But if, I do, but if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temple, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them from their territory, in order to take their land, and you vacated them of my people. It's not your land. It's not your people, Gentiles. Hands off. He says here, behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you've sold them and return your recompense on your head. Is God pretty clear? Does everybody see in verse 2, I will gather all the nations. Everybody see this? Very interesting how this works out. Take your Bible, turn to Matthew. Everybody breathes a sigh of relief. We know where that's at. Matthew 25. That's all the well-worn pages, right? Matthew 25. And look at verse 31. This is what's known as the judgment of the sheep and goats. And I want you to pay attention to the timing. It's going to tell you in prophecy, the end times, when this is going to take place. And it's going to tell you what takes place, okay? So watch this. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne... When is this? After the tribulation, exactly. And this glorious throne that he sits on is not a heavenly throne, not a celestial throne. It is the physical throne of David, his father, his descendant, royal, preeminent. And he, when he sits down, this is the establishment of his kingdom. And now that he's come with his angels and he sits down on his throne because he's ready to judge and rule, now he's got some business to take care of in the inauguration of his kingdom. And watch how this happens. Verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before me. Does that sound familiar? Right in there, Joel 3, verse 2. That's where this takes place. This is how this connects together. All the nations, all the Gentiles will be gathered before me, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now what I did is I labeled sheep in my Bible A and right A. Goats, B. Left hand, B. 
that just helps me think through it because I need that kind of help. Lord, have mercy on my soul, okay? So watch how this moves forward. Verse 34, don't miss this verse. Then the king, I love that. That's when you get out. That's when you find a different highlighter in your purse and you get it out. If you got to use minty chapstick so that smells good, fine, so be it. The king, that's him. Then the king will say to those on his right, group A, come, you who are blessed of my father, who are what? Pay attention to this word, guys. Who are blessed of my father. Why is that? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They get a share. They get a possession piece in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now watch how this unfolds. For, verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Does that sound like good stuff? Boy, it's good stuff. Notice what it says here after that. Verse 37. Then the righteous, group A, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Sounds like they're almost caught off guard by the situation. They're a little surprised. Everybody see this? Look how Jesus answers them. Verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, group A, here's what he says. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Was Jesus a Gentile? He was a Jew. And so he is talking about his brethren according to the flesh, the Jewish people. When you cared for the Jewish people, you cared for me. When you took seriously the promise I gave in Genesis 12, 3, took care of mine. Claudia, you okay, girl? Need cigarette? Sorry, that probably drew up the legalism in some of you guys. You okay? You want some water? Hold on. I can blame you now for that, so here we go. You okay? Okay. Good deal. All right. The king will answer and say to them, verse 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them. Think about that, guys. Even to the least of them. You did it to me. You serve Jesus when you take him by his word. And when he says, bless them, don't condone their sin. Don't say everything they do is right. It's not. No one knows that better than God. But when you make it a priority in your Christianity to care for and to love the people of Israel, you have served Jesus Christ directly. And it elicits itself in eternity when it all really matters in reward, possession, come and inherit the kingdom. Now, what happens to those people that didn't listen to the scriptures? Verse 41. Then he will say also to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones. Right? If you belittle them, I will what? I will curse you. Everybody see this? Notice, accursed ones. Into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And here's what's so tragic about that is that eternal fire. Notice he doesn't say it was prepared for people. The eternal fire was never prepared for people. 
It was prepared as a place for Satan because of his rebellion against God. God's intention was never that people go there. People choose to go there when they reject Christ. Notice it says here, For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not visit me. Then they themselves, group B, will also answer, Lord, and I think it's interesting that they're accursed and they still have to call him Lord. Why? Because he's the king. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Because you made the mistake of saying, well, the church has replaced Israel and so we don't need to minister to them anymore. That's why it's devilish theology. Look what it says here, verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now, is that to say that works earn you salvation? No, what I'm saying is, is that the works based out of whether or not they had salvation manifested itself during the tribulation time as to whether or not they cared about the Jewish people. That's what I'm saying. So where is the judgment that takes place here? Well, notice it's not just a judgment against Pharaoh, but the requirement of this dispensation goes on into the kingdom until a final judgment is made on those Gentile nations who curse Israel. Now, where is the grace? Turn to Isaiah 19. Here's where we'll end. I don't know that any one passage this week impacted me as much as what we're getting ready to read. And it's not that I didn't know it was there. It just took the Holy Spirit to smack me between the eyes to pay attention to it. So I pray that you are encouraged by this verse. Chapter 19 of Isaiah, this passage. Verse 17, watch this. Speaking of the end, whenever Jesus sets up the kingdom, it says, The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of Yahweh of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan. Did you see what just happened? Five cities in Egypt are going to be speaking the language of Canaan. Now, if you know your geography, you say, okay, wait a second, that's not right. Look what it says here. And swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. I'm waiting for this to set in on some of you. I'm looking for the light bulbs to go off. Look what it says. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a champion. And he will deliver them. Thus, Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and they will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. And I wrote in huge letters next to my Bible, wow, why is that? Aren't these the people that said, you know what, they're starting to get to be a lot of people. We should probably enslave them so we can keep them under control. 
Aren't they probably the seedbed that Satan was planting that would end up being the idolatrous draw that plagued them for the rest of their time? Aren't these the ones who put them to work to build entire cities? And then when it got real dicey with Moses coming in and causing trouble, started taking things away and they still had to meet the same quota? Weren't these the people that were beating the Jews? I look at this passage and I say, God, they don't deserve this. And God says, you're right. They don't. And neither do you. Look how this unfolds. Verse 22. Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to Yahweh. And he will respond to them and will heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come to Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now remember, the Assyrians were scary people. The Assyrians were the people that when they captured you, they led you back to Assyria with chained together fish hooks that they put through your jaws and drug you back to where they were. And then when they got you there, they skinned you alive and covered their furniture with your skin. They were crazy. They hated the Jewish people. What's God saying? In the end, everybody's getting together. Look what he says, verse 24. And that day Israel will become the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Where is the grace in this dispensation? The fact that Israel's greatest enemies are going to be her co-worshippers. And all will fall under the headship of the one true God. Egypt doesn't deserve that. Assyria doesn't deserve that. And yet since God knows the future, He says, here's how it's going to happen. Now, if that's not grace in the Bible, I don't know what is. Because it is the exact opposite of what they deserve. Israel deserves to have every Pharaoh covered with the Red Sea. You know what I love about this passage? Israel are Jews. What are the Egyptians? They're Muslims. What are the Assyrians? Muslims. Muhammad ain't got nothing on this. The Lord is going to bring revival to the Muslim people. And they are going to repent in the coming kingdom of how they treated Israel. And they're going to lock arms with the Jews that they once hated and shot bombs and rockets into their civilizations in order to try to kill their people. And they will all gather around an altar that has been erected in Egypt and they will praise Yahweh, the creator of all things. That's the grace of God. I'm scared to add to that. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are holy and mighty and awesome. And that in this dispensation of promise, maybe we've never thought too seriously about whether or not we are blessing the Jewish people. That's an individual decision that each one of us need to come to today. And I pray because of the goodness of your word and the conviction that the Holy Spirit can bring on our hearts that that be a different day 
for us now moving forward. In your sight, no one is deserving of your mercy. But if we are to follow your lead, that is all the more reason to be merciful, to show grace, to demonstrate loyal love and loving kindness. And with the hostile tensions of our world and the political systems and nations and kingdoms and kings or whatever, we need to look past all that and we need to be obedient. So, Father, I pray that you impress upon our hearts the truth of your word and give us a renewed fervor and passion and understanding of not just loving and wanting to encourage the Jewish people to know their Christ, but to be revived in thankfulness to the Christ who has been so gracious to us as undeserving people. Thank you for being so loving. We pray it in the name of our Savior, our Deliverer. Amen.